Very good. Turn, if you would, tonight to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I appreciate you being here tonight. It's a blessing to me, and I hope that our time is not wasted tonight. I trust that it will not be, and I've enjoyed the singing. I hope you have also, and uh, get into the Word tonight. Let's go ahead and begin with a word of prayer, and we will get started. Father, it is good tonight to be reminded of your grace. It's good to be reminded of your faithfulness. And, Lord, we're thankful for your promises that we can cling to in those times of need, whatever the need may be. We're thankful, Lord, for your just your overall goodness to us. I do pray that tonight you would help me to say what you've laid upon my heart. I pray that we would take it as a church family and that we would apply it in the areas that it would be necessary, in the areas that it would be helpful. And, God, that you'd help it. Uh, to be used tonight to strengthen us in our walk with you. I pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, you may remember, we looked at the first few verses of chapter 6, and we watched as the Apostle Paul had to rebuke the believers there in Corinth because really what was happening is selfishness was ruling the church. And so what was happening is there would be conflicts and there would be issues between the brethren, and rather than them resolving those conflicts in the church in the way that it ought to have been done, they would take those conflicts and they would take their issues to the courts and have them established or have them settled uh, by the uh, verdicts of the ungodly. And what uh, Paul said to them was this, that first of all, they should be embarrassed of, of their actions, and, and he was trying to shame them, he was trying to embarrass them. But what he also said was this, is that they ought to come to a point in their, in their spiritual maturity where, where they are willing to be uh, cheated, where they are willing to be taken advantage of, and uh, to be wronged, and that can be a difficult position to come to in your spiritual maturity, can it not? because our flesh wants to fight for our rights, and so you can only imagine how difficult it would have been for the believers there in Corinth to hear that. But for the sake of their testimony, they needed to be reminded, hey, listen, you do not have to win every argument. You do not have to win every dispute or every issue. And so I tried to remind us last week that though we do not live in a culture where you and I are constantly engaged in legal battles, we can be constantly engaged in conflict with different people because of our selfishness. It is by nature our tendency to want to win every argument that we enter into. We don't want somebody to wrong us. We don't want somebody to cheat us. We don't want someone to get the better hand or to, to take advantage of us. And so by nature, we just tend to defend ourselves and we want to win at all costs and there are many times that for the sake of our testimony as a child of God, we simply need to just let the other person win, trusting that we know that God knows what actually happened, who was right, who was wrong, and us not concern ourselves with it. It's so easy, isn't it? Yeah, it's not. And if you pretend that it is, you're just not being honest. All right, so that's what we dealt with last week. In verses 1 through 8, tonight we're moving on. As we do, I want you to think about something. It's kind of a silly thought, but I trust that it'll make sense in a couple of moments. At least I hope that it will. Tonight I want you to imagine that you know someone who is looking to buy a house. All right, they're looking to buy a house, 
And in the process, what they have determined is this, is that they want to buy themselves a fixer-upper. They want to be able to make that house what they want it to be. They want to have their own personal touches, and they want to save money doing it themselves. And so they are going to buy themselves a fixer-upper. After all, they watch it on TV all the time, and how hard can it be? All right? So... They finally find themselves a house, and it's a fixer-upper for sure. And after they've closed on the house, here's what they say to you. Hey, come by and look at this house we've got. We can't wait to get started on it. We're so excited. So you agree to meet them one day over at the house. And as you pull up to the front drive, you can tell immediately, this is a fixer-upper. The yard is a mess, the trees are overgrown, the shrubs have taken over the front of the house. What part of the house you can see, you can tell it needs to be repainted. There are shutters falling off the front of the house. Whatever it looks like, you can just tell this is a mess. And you think to yourself immediately, I hope it gets better when you get inside. But once you step inside the front door, you can tell it's not gotten any better. In fact, maybe it's gotten a little bit worse. You go inside and you see that the carpet, it needs to be pulled up and it needs to be replaced. You can see that there are holes in the sheetrock that are going to have to be patched and it's going to have to be repainted. The bathrooms are going to need to be gutted. And just on and on and on the list goes. And so you walk around, you look at it with the new owners and you say, yep, 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 it, it's a fixer-upper. Good luck. Good luck. Have you ever been in a situation similar to that? I mean, maybe you can identify with that a little bit, okay? So, so, so that's happened, and, and just because we're using our imagination tonight, suppose that several months later, some time has passed, and you've not been over to the house, and so the person who bought the house several months ago, they, uh, they come to you and they say, hey, I want you to come by the house, and I want you to check the progress. So you say, okay. Yeah, what day do you want to come by? So you schedule another date for you to go by. Now, I want to ask you something. If it's been several months and they have said to you, I want you to come by and see the progress that's been made, let's be honest, every one of us are going to naturally assume that there will be visible changes to the property. That is what you would expect. Uh, that is logical, that makes sense, that is rational. You just assume that certain things are going to be done. And so suppose you go to the house at the appointed time, and as you pull up to the front drive like you did several months ago, immediately in your mind you're thinking to yourself, they must have spent all their time inside. Because the shrubs have still overtaken the house, the trees are still growing uncontrollably, the paint still has not been redone on the outside. The shutters are still falling off the front. So you say to yourself, okay, this, this, this isn't what I would have expected, but, but I guess all the work's been done on the inside. So you step through the door. You say hello to let the people know that you're there. And as you look around, you notice it's the same carpet. As you look around, you realize that none of the holes have been patched in the walls and nothing has been repainted and the bathrooms are in the same condition they were several months ago. Now again, if you and I are honest, here's what we would say. We're not being judgmental, but we would say this, not much progress has been made. Because really it looks just like it did several months ago. On the outside, it's still a wreck. On the inside, it's still a wreck. I can't tell that you've touched anything. So imagine the person comes through into the room where you're now standing, and they say, so what do you think? 
You can only really do one thing at that point and still be nice, and that would be something like this. Huh. Huh. <laughs> and just not really say much. Now, there's a principle in this that I want us to think about and that I want us to, to admit to, and that is this, is, is if we've been told that something has been remodeled, we expect it to look different than when it began. If someone says this is a different product than it began as, we expect there to be some kind of a difference. We don't expect it to be identical and just the same and unchanged. We don't look at that and say, well, yeah, that's what I expected in this remodel project. No, we would say without hesitation, uh, I don't know what you call it, but that has not been remodeled. Now, with that principle in mind, I want us to look toward the middle of verse number 11. Toward the middle of verse number 11, here's what the Apostle Paul said to the believers of Corinth. He said, But ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Now, we're going to go back to verses 9 and 10 in just a couple of moments, but he said in verse number 11 of the Corinthian believers that ye are washed, ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of our Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Let me ask you something this morning or this evening. Don't answer it out loud. But whenever he said that they have been washed, sanctified, and justified in the name of the, in the, name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God, what does it mean whenever he says that it's been done in the name of the Lord Jesus? Well, here's what it means, and I'm sure that you know this, but it means that this has been done by the name of Jesus or through the name of Jesus. Okay, and so what the Apostle Paul is saying is this, what has happened in your life is not because of something you did. It's not because of a certain decision you made to improve yourself or to better yourself. But what has happened in your life is the result of what God has done in your life or through your life. It's been done by Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of the God working in your life. And so the question tonight would be this, what did Paul say had happened in their lives? Well, go back to the part we just read. He said, but ye are washed. Ye are washed. What does it mean to have been washed? It means this. To have something washed away or to have something remitted. To have something washed away or to have something remitted. So what did they have washed away? Well, common sense in dealing with the scripture and the context of things. Common sense would force us to, to understand or to conclude that the Apostle Paul was talking about their sins. Their sins had been washed away by the, the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God or through. And then this word remitted, it's a wonderful word. It means this. To have one's punishment canceled. To have one's punishment canceled. And so here's what the Apostle Paul said, that by the Lord Jesus or through the Lord Jesus, in the Lord Jesus, you have had your sins washed away and the penalty or the punishment that you deserved because of your sin, that has now been canceled. 
That is a wonderful truth. To know your sins have been washed away and the punishment and the penalty that you deserve, that was canceled out because of what the Lord Jesus, through the Spirit of God, did in your life. But he didn't stop there. He said, not only are you washed, he said, ye are sanctified. What does it mean to be sanctified? It means this, to be dedicated or consecrated to God. It means to be set apart and separated from the things of this world and set apart for the service of God. So if you think about it, the Apostle Paul is just explaining one wonderful truth after another wonderful truth. He said, you have been washed, your sins have been washed away. The penalty that you deserved, it's been canceled. It's no longer something you have to worry about. And now you have been sanctified. You have been set apart from this world. You have been set aside for the purpose of God. And then he said in verse number 11, but ye are justified. What does it mean to be justified? It means this, to be declared righteous before God. So because of their salvation, they were now right before God. Again, not because of anything they had done, but because of the work of Jesus Christ, through the Spirit of the Lord, through the Spirit of God, they were now right in the eyes of God. That, I just want to stress one more time, is a series of fantastic truths that because of what Jesus Christ has done for you, you've been washed, your sins are all gone, the penalty that you deserve has been canceled out, you're now separated from the world, set apart for the service of the Lord, and now you are declared righteous in the sight of God. And again, it had nothing to do with you, it had everything to do with Him. Now, as great as that is, go back to verse number 9. In verse number 9, here's what we're going to see. We're going to see that Paul is going to list some sins. We're going to go through these very quickly just to make sure that we all are aware of what the Apostle Paul is talking about. And we might say something like this. These are big sins. These are doozies. And there's a point to be made in all this. He says, neither fornicators. Fornicators. Most of us know what a fornicator is. I don't want to be graphic. I don't want to spend too much time in this. But this would be one who engages in physical sexual activity prior to marriage. All right? So we understand what fornication is. We understand that that would not be right. We understand that it's not acceptable in the sight of God. So Paul mentions fornicators, and then he mentions idolaters. What is an idolater? An idolater was someone who served something other than the one true Jehovah God. And you know this as well as I do, but I just want to say it again tonight, that a God before Jehovah God can be anything. It does not have to be an idol that is made with hands. It does not have to be something that a person takes and prays to and bows down to. But it is something that stands between them and God, their personal relationship with God. And so he says in verse number 9 that there are fornicators and there are idolaters. And then he said there are adulterers. What does it mean for someone to be an adulterer? It would mean that someone has been active outside the boundaries of their marriage partner. All right? And so we understand what an adulterer is. And then he speaks of the effeminate person. What is an effeminate person? That would be someone of the male gender who has taken on the qualities of the female gender. 
It's the man who walks around and he talks like a woman. He, he prances like a woman. He walks like a woman. We understand what that is. Every once in a while we see one of those and we're just kind of turned off by it. I hope. Okay. Some of you aren't looking so confident, but I trust that that's just because you got lost in thought. But I'm just saying, like the other night, Susie and I went out to eat. Unfortunately, our waiter was effeminate, and, and my heart went out to him because I thought this just isn't right. Okay, So we understand what it means to be effeminate. Notice what he said next. Nor abusers of themselves with mankind. That is simply a reference to homosexuality. Okay, And, and what he says is this, is that it's an abuse of the body. That's not how the body was designed. That's not how God created the, the anatomy to work. And that's not how God created the desires to work. And, and so we understand this, that just like fornication and adultery and, adult, adultery and idolatry and effeminism would be sin, then obviously so would the sin of homosexuality. He says in verse number 10, he speaks of the thieves. Who are the thieves? They are the ones... Uh, they are the ones, I apologize, I got sidetracked. They are the ones who steal, obviously, from others for their own gain. Who are the covetous? The covetous are the ones who are never content with what they have. They always want what someone else has. After the covetous, he speaks of the drunkard. Who is the drunkard? It is the one who is constantly controlled by the substance of alcohol, the one who is consistently intoxicated. And then he mentions in verse number 10, the reviler. Who is the reviler? That is the one who is abusive in the words that they speak. And then finally, in verse number 10, he speaks of the extortioner. And that would be the one who takes advantage of other people for their own gain. It would be very similar to that of the thief, okay? So we understand the the rundown of the sins, don't we, that I've gone through very quickly, the ones that, saw, uh, that Paul mentions, the fornicator, idolater, adulterer, effeminate, abusers of themselves with mankind, the thief, the covetous, the drunkard, the reviler, and the extortioner. And he says, shall inherit the kingdom of God. We'll deal with that in context in just a minute. But notice what he said in verse number 11. He said, and such were some of you. And such were some of you. Now, that wording is very important. Why is that important? Because that statement is made in the past tense. Does this make sense? He said, and such were some of you. He did not say, and such are some of you. See, if you look at this in the flow, if you look at this in the context... He mentions these sins, and he says this. You've got the adulterer, the fornicator, the idolater, the effeminate, the homosexual, the thief, the coveter, the drunkard, the reviler, the extortioner. And he said, this is what some of you used to be. Now think about this. Whoever was reading this, they knew which one they were. There was the person sitting in the church, and they knew they used to be the thief. There was the one sitting in the church, and they knew they used to be the fornicator. They, they were sitting there, and, and some of them knew I was the drunkard. One knew that I was the one who was abusive in the words that I spoke. Whatever it was, they knew who they were. But, but follow this. Paul said, you were that. It's not that you are that. And the reason that you were that, but you are not that, is because you have been washed, you have been sanctified and justified. Now, what is Paul saying? He is simply saying this, 
because of your salvation, you are no longer what you once were. See, here's, let's follow this. This is, this is needed, needed, needed information. Because of your salvation, you cannot be what you used to be. It would be like a spiritual rehab taking place. It would be like a spiritual remodeling taking place, okay? Here you were prior to being washed, prior to being sanctified, prior to being justified. Here you were living in these sins, the adulterer, the idolater, the fornicator, the drunkard, whatever it may be. This is what you were, but because you have been saved, that is all past tense because when you are truly a child of God, you cannot stay what you were. You must be changed and become what God would have you to be. Now, I'm sure that this doesn't surprise you, but I just want to go ahead and say it anyway in case there's somebody watching or listening to this. But I just want to say this tonight so that we're all clear on this, that the rules never changed in Scripture. And all I mean by that then is this, is that whenever a person today is unsaved, whatever their lifestyle is, that is the result of their lost condition. But if that person claims to get saved, claims to get a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, then here is what you and I should expect. We should expect to be able to see a change in their lives. So if they used to be the drunk, they need to be sober. If they used to be the fornicator, they now need to be abstinent. If they used to be the homosexual, they now need to be heterosexual. If they used to be abusive, they now need to be kinder and softer. There has to be a change because of what God has done in their lives. It was inconceivable to the mind of Paul that a person could be saved and stay as they were. We'll deal with this more in just a moment. Paul knew that everyone sins. Okay, Paul was very aware of his own sin. It's not as though Paul said you get saved and you got to be perfect or else there's something wrong with you spiritually. But Paul did say, listen, after some time, we should be seeing some progress in these areas. I shouldn't be talking to you several months later and you still be dealing with the exact same issues you were dealing with months ago. In this renovation process, in this transformation process, for lack of better words, there should be visible changes of your life getting rid of the old and putting on the new. That in mind... Notice what he said in verse number 9. He said, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Who are the unrighteous? Well, those would be the ones who have not been justified. They would be the ones who haven't been sanctified because they have not been washed. See, the unrighteous is the person who is not right with God. Because they are not saved. Now, now, notice what he said. He said, Know ye not 
that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. What does it mean to not inherit the kingdom of God? It means this, that there is not a place in heaven for the one who was never made right with God while on this earth. So see, if a person never acknowledges their sin and repents of their sin and calls upon Christ to save them for eternity, listen, if no one ever, or if a person never does that, then there is not a place reserved for them in heaven when they leave this life. Now the the question and the manner in which he says it is interesting because he said this, Know ye not? (laughs) Do you not understand this? Do you not yet perceive this? Paul asked. Okay, Corinthian believers, has this not registered with you yet? That those who are unrighteous, those who have never been washed, sanctified, and justified, do you not get it that there's not a place for them in heaven? If the fornicator never repents, there's not a place for them in heaven. If the idolater never repents, there's not a place for them in heaven. If the adulterer, the effeminate, and just go right on down the line, if they don't repent, do you not know? Know ye not that they will not inherit the kingdom of God? What he says after that really is is just as provocative and maybe even convicting because he said this. Be not deceived. Be not deceived. What does it mean to be deceived? It means this, to be led astray. It's the idea of being taken away from that which is truth and that which is right to that which would be false and that which would be wrong. Corinthians, come on. Do you not understand this? Don't let yourselves be deceived. The fornicator, the idolater, the adulterer, the effeminate, the abuser of mankind, the drunkard, the reviler, the extortioner, the, the, the one who engages in these sins. Listen, if they don't repent... They will not enter into the kingdom of God. What do those opening statements in this portion of Scripture show and reveal and and indicate? It reveals and indicates this, that apparently there were some in the church of Corinth who were beginning to buy into this notion that maybe you could be saved, but the life didn't have to show any fruit of change. They're a fornicator, and they claim to be saved, and yet they continue to live a lifestyle of fornication. Well, I don't know. I mean, I don't want to be judgmental. Paul says, don't be deceived. 
That's what you were, but that's not what you are because you've been washed and sanctified and justified. They're looking at someone who still has idolatry in their life. They're looking at someone who is still an adulterer, someone who is still a thief, someone who is still covetous, whatever it may be. And they're saying to themselves, well, I don't know. And the Apostle Paul would say, come on now, don't be deceived. This indecisive attitude, this this lack of conviction and this lack of certainty as to whether or not you can be saved and not have a changed life, Paul says, come on. Remember what you were and what you are now. All of that happened because of what Jesus Christ, through the Spirit of God, did in your life. And I think Paul is trying to communicate to them Listen, that if this person truly had the Spirit of God in their life, then the same remodeling process in their life would have taken place that took place in your life. Come on, Corinth. Do you not understand this? (laughs) Come on, Corinthians, don't be deceived. People who don't repent, they don't inherit the kingdom of God. Now this evening, we sit here and we say, okay, I I got you, I got you on that, okay. I want to say this and I want to make this very clear. Just because a person sins does not mean, first of all, for sure, that they have lost their salvation or they have never been saved. Because you and I are capable of committing every one of these sins that have been listed on this page. You understand this? I mean, certain things could happen in my life, and, and I could certainly become an adulterer. I mean, there are certain things in my life that could, that could take place and I could certainly become an idolater. I could certainly become a thief. I could certainly and have struggled with covetousness before. I mean, you just look at anything in that list. I mean, I'd like to say that I couldn't be effeminate or homosexual, but I don't know the depravity of which I am capable of. Okay, so I, I mean, I, I don't want to sit there and say, well, I would never struggle with that because then I am open game for that very thing that I would say I would never struggle with. Understand, please, I am capable of sinning any sin that is available to man. But if I am a child of God, there are a couple of things that are true. If I am a child of God and I choose to engage in certain sins... There will be an inability to do those things with a peace of mind and a sense of contentment while I live in that sin. The Holy Spirit will be working on me the entire time. 
So I want to be covetous. I want to be idolatrous. I want to be adulterous. Listen, even in my mind, in my thoughts, listen, I can do that. But you know what? I'm not going to enjoy it because I will be grieving the Holy Spirit throughout this entire process. And it is possible that I could even come to the point where I would quench the work of the Spirit of God in my life. But I will say this, that if truly I am a child of God and I am engaging in these activities to the point that I am grieving and quenching the Holy Spirit... If I am a child of God, the Bible teaches that I will be chastised because of that disobedience. Child of God does not get away with their sin forever because the child of God cannot let, or or the Spirit of God will not let the child of God go forever in that sin without some kind of punishment for that sinful lifestyle. If I, if anyone else, choose to sin, it doesn't matter if we call it big sins or little sins or something in between, the Holy Spirit is going to work and the Holy Spirit is going to convict and the Holy Spirit is going to do everything that He can to get me back in fellowship. And whenever I am finally willing to humble myself, that is when... The fellowship is restored, and I'm back to where I'm supposed to be. Here is the thing. When someone lives in sin, take any of these sins you want to mention, or maybe some more that you'd like to add, because this is certainly not an, uh, an, an all-inclusive statement in verses 10 and 11 or 9 and 10, If a person is able to live in sin, disobedience, and rebellion toward God, if they're able to do that, they are not grieved, and they are not chastised, you and I really need to question whether or not the person has ever been washed sanctified and justified because when a person has been washed sanctified and justified it will be past tense not present tense and i'm telling you and i know that i've said this so many times before that to a degree i could sound like a broken record but i am telling you we are living in a culture where the church is sounding more and more like corinth where we're just kind of undecided in the matter. And Paul would say to the church of at least America today, know ye not? (laughs) Come on, Grace Baptist and Pampa, don't you understand? See, here's what the Church of America, for for so many, here's what we do. We say the same thing that that Corinth seems to have been struggling with. Well, you know, I mean, I, I know that they prayed a prayer a few years ago. Okay, but where's the remodeling process? I mean, we would naturally expect it of a home. Why wouldn't we naturally expect it of the one who prayed the prayer? Well, I mean, I I know it's, but you know, it's just so tough to break some of those habits. What is the Spirit of God for? (laughs) 
Know we not that if we're saved, the Spirit of God can give victory over whatever sin that is present in the life of that person? Listen, we're, we're not helping ourselves as Christians if we're kind of undecided and waffling in the matter. There needs to be a sense of conviction in every one of us that, friends, if there is not a changed life, we need to question whether or not they ever truly called upon Christ to save them, and we need to question whether or not the Spirit of God ever indwelt them. But we wrestle with it. And then so many, just to be frank, have been deceived. They've been led astray. Again, I know I've mentioned this on many occasions to the point of sounding repetitive, but I mean, the number of times I have visited with families at points of, uh, of, points of death, and, and they're saying to me, now, I, I know mama didn't, or I know daddy didn't, I know they didn't, whoever the loved one is. And they go through all these lists of things that this person never did, but they want me to be assured that that person was a child of God. Friends, the outside was a mess. The inside was a mess. Nothing ever changed throughout their entire life. They died in their sin. They died in rebellion. They died in disobedience. And yet I'm, I'm, supposed, to, I'm supposed to believe that, that they're in the presence of God right now? And yet there are people all over the place who have convinced themselves well, I think they're really saved. I just, I just think. Well, I, I, I think they're really saved. I just believe and, and I just really feel. And Hold on, hold on. You cannot be saved without a changed life. You just can't be. Old things cannot pass away. Behold, all things become new. Us become a new creature and things remain the same. It's just impossible. We should no more allow for that than we would allow for our friends to buy a fixer-upper, not change anything, and call it remodeled. I'm just saying that in this crazy, weird, mixed-up, messed-up world that we live in, we have to be decisive on this. And we have to be men and women of conviction. Not that we have to be hateful or belligerent or obnoxious or anything like that. But we just have to be willing to say, you know what, there's no fruit of salvation. I'm not trying to be harsh. I know I'm not the Holy Spirit. I'm just saying there's not much fruit of salvation. And I'm not going to get real excited about the testimony until I see some kind of a changed life. We just need the reminder to have some conviction to have some grit about us in our spiritual position that salvation demands a changed life. You cannot be washed, sanctified, and justified, and there be no change in your spiritual life. Let's all stand this evening and bow our heads for a word of prayer. Fathers, I come to you this evening. I pray that you just help us tonight to be reminded of this simple truth, really. And yet, as simple as the truth is, it seems like so many today struggle with this. 
We don't really expect and we don't really require any kind of a changed life, though someone says they've come into contact with you and they've been saved. Truly, that, that thought process is just kind of absurd. So I pray that tonight you'd help us to be some men and women of conviction and that we would be resolved in our heart and mind to just know that if a person claims to be saved, there ought to be some fruit. I pray these things now in Jesus' name. Amen.